0: A Spectacle of Deepest Harmony, Notes on Good Architecture by Pierre Vittorio Relli. This is from Oase number 90. I feel uncomfortable reasoning about good architecture. Why? Isn't it an important, if not the most important, discrimination architects, critics and the public should make? The fact that most people asked to answer this simple but crucial question hesitate is very symptomatic of the state of contemporary architectural culture. Judgment beyond personal opinion has become impossible, while it is even more impossible to agree on common standards enabling us to agree on the quality of architecture. Perhaps perhaps we should say that to argue about good architecture as if it were an absolute value without at the same time specifying what it is good for is simply impossible. Or it is at least, as Wittgenstein would put it, a nonsense. According to Wittgenstein, every value judgment relative to something specific is an assertion of facts while there is no assertion of facts that can assume or imply an absolute value judgment. To say that a chair is good is to presume that an object called chair exists and serves a goal. Only based on this a priori understanding can we decide whether a chair is good or not. This does not, however, imply that judgment is always independent of external conditions. The impossibility of an absolute value judgment is closely linked to the limits of language. Beyond this, only the daily practicing of certain principles, of a way of life, of a way to do things, can, without defining it in words, approximate the idea of what is good. I believe that while it is impossible to define good architecture in terms of its identity, which is to say in terms of style, social purpose, programmatic goal, or aesthetic qualities, it is possible to describe good architecture in terms of making it. Based on certain principles of making and teaching architecture, I would argue that architecture is good when it manifests itself by making space, by making room for something else. Good architecture sets itself back. It functions more as a background than as a foreground. In this sense, good architecture has to be modest and yet inevitably powerful. Modest because it always acknowledges its own limits, especially its ethical ones. It simply cannot solve everything. And powerful because in spite of its limits, it has to take responsibility. It has to face the fact that its purposes are almost never good. Since it came about in the 15th century, architecture has never been innocent. Its relationship to power is always essential for its realization. Architecture never has the exclusive goal of making the city and the life of its inhabitants better. When architecture is made with this purpose, what is at stake is not simply the improvements of the inhabitants' life but also the possibility of their mastery by a ruler, by the state, by a paternalistic institution, or by the market. For this reason, I'm arguing that good architecture has to make space. Imposing its order, architecture can limit itself by becoming a limit as such, or rather by becoming something wherein something else can take place. In order to be good, architecture has to fulfil a tabula rasa. It has to become destructive. Of course, architecture, in a literal sense, is de facto destructive. It is always a forceful alteration of what exists and an interruption of what came before, no matter how good or kind the intentions of the architect are. Next to this, architecture should also be descriptive destructive in a symbolical sense, by ridding itself of illusions concerning architecture and by making exactly this aspect explicit, by showing it and by making clear that, for example, a wall is a wall and not an allusion to something else. From Vitruvius's De Architectura to Alberti's De Re Edificatoria, from Sir Leo's sixth book on habitations to Le Corbusier's version of architecture, the very concept of building has been defined, not just as an artistic or technical expertise, but as a projection of moral and ideological values, whose goal is the forming of a quote, good that is docile subject. It is well known that Vitruvius invented the discipline of architecture at the end of the Civil War that marked the passage from the Roman Republic to the Empire of Augustus, to whom he dedicated his book. Architecture was thus created as the embodiment of a new order, identified with the benevolent patronage of the new imperial state, with which it fought against the evil of civil disorder. This mandate was reaffirmed when Le Corbusier confronted his quote, enlightened clients and their authorities with the famous dilemma architecture or revolution, the most concise definition of an architectural ethics ever made. In the writings of these authors, a very important category is defined by Serlio as decorum the practice of social containment that enables society to develop its standards of decency and normality. Concepts like building and decorum guarantee that every social problem can find its architectural solution. Architecture collaborates with power not just by means of symbolic appropriation. Power inherently develops architecture's very raison d'etre as the cultivation of the well being of society. The history of architecture is ripe with examples that prove this. The better architecture becomes, the more it extends the existing apparatuses of control. This is especially true for the kind of architecture that grants its inhabitants participation. Interaction and participation become the most efficient means to enhance control and engender submission to the mechanisms of power, mechanisms that are inevitably implied in every architectural space. It is precisely an architecture that wants to be too good that becomes far more oppressive than an architecture that makes clear its own questionable premises. Rather than reinforcing its inherent moral values as, quote, the art of building, architecture, in order to be good and not too good, has to become destructive. Architecture will never escape paternalism, but this can be exceeded when the uprooting uprooting architectural energy is made explicit. This is only possible when a building, no matter how big or small, acts as a tabula rasa, as the establishment of a new ground and thus new conditions. One of the most beautiful texts ever written on architecture. In one of the most beautiful texts, Walter Benjamin identified its purpose with what he called the destructive character. The destructive character of architecture is not good in, it, in itself. It is not essentially benign towards life. To a certain extent, Benjamin's text can be read as a paradoxical ode to the same social and political forces that can threaten the life of people. Benjamin wrote this text while witnessing the disastrous consequences of the re- recession of 1929 and the rise of European fascism. The beginning of the short essay clearly points to a time when the destructive character is personified by adverse figures, those toward whom we endure all our deeper obligations. Benjamin makes clear that the source of the destructive character is not a liberating force, but an oppressive one. And yet it is precisely the possibility of the shock of the sudden realisation that our that our life depends on forces that are essentially destructive that opens up their use for our own sake. This is fundamental in the way Benjamin seizes the category of destruction. Unlike Vitruvius's and Alberti's art of building, which always embodies ethical and moral values, and thus the obligations that we endure towards any form of power, the pars destruens, reaches out to the, uh, to the annihilation of forces, and thus to the loss of every value of every stable point of reference. Benjamin would find no fault in identifying the destructive character with Haussmann's ruthless destruction of Paris, as it captured an energy that was the truest embodiment of capital's aggression towards the city and yet there is always a chance to turn such a destructive character into a possibility of opening up a new beginning. Such a chance can only be manifested by the sheer intensity of an architectural gesture that is clearly defined and that does not leave any doubt about its being there. Regardless of its ideological origins, such a gesture will always carry a liberating severance from everything that came before. An architecture that makes space and that creates a void is simultaneously the logical outcome of a specific political goal and the beginning of something unforeseeable, something that brings fresh air. As Benjamin wrote in the most crucial passage of his text, The destructive character knows only one watchword, make room, and only one activity, clearing away His need for fresh air and open space is stronger than any hatred. The destructive character is young and cheerful. For destroying rejuvenates because it clears away the traces of our own age. It cheers because everything cleared away means to the destroyer a complete reduction, indeed a rooting out of his own condition. Really, only the insight into how radically the world is simplified when tested for its worthiness for destruction leads to such an Apollonian image of the destroyer. This is the great bond embracing and unifying all that exists. It is the sight that affords the destructive character a spectacle of deepest harmony.